The words will be up on the screen as well. So if you don't have your device or Bible, follow along on the screen. Otherwise, it is Mark 16, verses 1 to 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on, the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone, because they were afraid. Evening, everybody. Uh, isn't it great to have Katie read the Bible? Because it just... Uh, Katie's a newsreader, in case you don't already know that, if that wasn't self-evident, but it just has this ring of authority when she reads the Bible. It's lovely to listen to. Um, yes, my name's Mark. I'm one of the pastors here. Great to have you with us, uh, especially if you're, you've been invited along by somebody here at WBC. Really stoked to have you guys. Uh, welcome. hope uh, you have an, a nice evening with us. I'm going to pray for God's help uh, one more time, and then uh, let's have a think about Mark 16 together. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we, we really do thank you uh, for this time now to uh, sit and listen and think. Uh, thank you that we can do so freely. And so I do pray that you'd please help us to make the most of this opportunity that we have, no matter uh, for anyone in this room, where they're coming from and what their beliefs are and, where, and what their background is. We pray that you would help us to all be open-minded as we look at the Bible tonight. Uh, we do pray that you'd help us uh, by your Holy Spirit uh, to see the Lord Jesus and to understand more about who he is and what he has done. And I pray, Lord, that you would please be helping us tonight to believe what we read tonight. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, what was the, the most disappointing part of the last 12 months for you? Can you think of something? Think back over your, your last year to date. What was the most disappointing thing for you? Is there anything that you were really looking forward to over this last year that, you know, due to obvious reasons, didn't end up coming to be. Anything come to mind? What was that, sorry? Coming to church. Trevor, 10 points. Uh, I'll tell you what my most disappointing part of the last 12 months is. It's a much less holy answer than Trevor's. Is um, my family and I had, had booked to go on a cruise uh, last year. It was a uh, sort of, I think it was about 10 days, cruising around the South Pacific. We had uh, visions when we booked this thing of you know, soaking up the sun on exotic beaches and snorkeling with rainbow-coloured fish and eating, you know, buffets all day, every day. Uh, we were so looking forward to this thing. We had actually booked it to coincide with my daughter's fifth birthday. And so we had planned a big celebration for her on board the cruise, and she still brings it up, the fact that she missed out on this. Uh, to be honest, the thing that I was missing, I, I was looking forward to the most, if I'm being completely honest, and I feel I can be completely honest with you, is that this cruise that we were going on had really top-notch kids clubs and kind of crashes and so my wife and I were looking forward to having just a you know few hours a day for a few days in a row just to ourselves uh, being you know real adults 
Uh, that was what we were looking forward to the most. We had uh, been hoping for this thing for, for months and months. We had done all the organisation, bought new passports. We'd even started packing our bags. Uh, we were scheduled to leave on the 18th of March, 2020. Uh, which, yes, thank you. Thank you for the sympathy. Because you all know what happened, don't you? The weekend before that, uh, all of the cruise lines all over the world shut up shop. They decided, no, we're not going to go cruising anymore. Many of them have, have not returned to the seas yet. And so overnight, our hopes were dashed. We were gutted. And uh, now, you know, some of you who are probably less fond of cruise lines, you might think that that was a bullet dodged, and you'd probably be right about that. But nevertheless, we were still very disappointed to miss out on this. I wonder, what's your 2020 disappointment story? What is it that you were hoping for last year that never came about? I reckon that each one of us will, if we, if we just put some thought into it, have an answer to that question. Uh, what was it in this last 12 months that you really wanted to see happen that didn't? It could be something as trivial as missing out on a holiday, or it could actually be something a lot more serious. Uh, career opportunities taken away from you. Uh, time spent with loved ones missed out on. It could be something more consequential. I do think, though, that each one of us, regardless, will have, an an ha will have said to ourselves over the last 12 months, well, this really hasn't turned out the way I was hoping it was going to. Well, today we're picking back up on the Easter story and we're jumping into it at a point where the followers of Jesus felt as if their hopes had been completely dashed. Uh, their friend, at this point, had been arrested and executed by the religious authorities. He was dead and buried. And so it looks as if their hopes that they had pinned on Jesus for the last three years of following him around hopes that Jesus was going to be this new triumphant king, hopes that there was going to be a better tomorrow under Jesus' leadership. It looks like all of that had come to nothing, that their hopes would never be met. But what we're going to see as we look closely at this passage tonight, as we look back on the Easter story, is that there was still hope for them. The hope for them was actually a hope for the entire world. And so therefore, as we look at the hope of the disciples this evening, we are going to find a hope for us, for each one of us, regardless of our circumstances tonight, regardless of what 2020 threw at us. And as we look at this passage, I've really just got two very straightforward and simple points for us that we're going to work through. Firstly, we, as we look at Mark 16, we're going to think about what happened that first Easter morning, what happened. And then secondly, we're going to think about why did it happen? What happened? Why did it happen? That's where we're going. So first of all, let's have a think about what happened. What were the events that took place? Let's be clear about that. And uh, what I'm really going to do, I'm going to focus on verses 6 and 7 in the passage. That's where we're going to spend the majority of our time. Verse 6, the angel speaking to those women at the empty tomb, and he says, Don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Short kind of a, a, a statement there, uh, but in those words are contained the two majestic truths of the Christian faith, that Jesus the Nazarene was crucified and he has risen. And so right away, I just want to be absolutely crystal clear with you guys uh, about the claims that the Christian faith makes. Uh, the Christian faith claims that Jesus Christ was a real historical person who really did die on that cross who really was buried and then who really came back to life three days later. And I'm, I'm, the reason I'm making, I'm just sort of going out of my way to be clear on that, is 
just so that nobody is under any misunderstandings, that maybe, you know, when the Christian faith talks about the resurrection of Jesus, that it's being metaphorical or something. People can think that from time to time. And I want to be crystal clear that the, the Bible is saying here, no, this is a real historical event that happened to a real person. Uh, now, you might not like or agree with that historical claim, uh, and so there are certainly plenty of ways that plenty of people try to sort of get around that historical claim. Well, that couldn't have taken place. Jesus couldn't have really died on the cross, you know. Maybe they tortured him on the cross and he just lost a lot of blood and fainted. He looked dead and then they put him in the tomb and he recovered after a few days and kind of came back to life. Maybe that's your way of kind of circumventing that historical claim. And there'd be things that we could respond and, uh, and try and convince you otherwise. We could talk about how Roman centurions were really professional executioners and how they didn't make mistakes. And in fact, it would have been their lives on the line if they had failed to kill Jesus, the man they were commanded to kill. Uh, but we're not going to go into those things. Instead, what I'm going to do is I just want to look at the passage with you. I want to show you some of the evidence actually in this Bible passage that suggests that Jesus really did, in fact, die truly die. So look with me in the passage and notice, uh, first of all, kind of obviously, that, that this account is reported uh, by women, which might not seem all that significant to you, uh, to have the first people who find the empty tomb that Easter morning be women. Uh, but if you were reading this account 2,000 years ago when, when Mark first wrote it, you would have been shocked to read that. Uh, you see, because back in, in that society, it was quite a, a kind of a prejudiced society, and so this would not have gotten the Christian story very far at all. Uh, we know this, actually, because the opponents of Christianity, uh, they would rail against Christianity and, and quote the fact that the women were the ones who found the empty tomb as evidence that it shouldn't be believed. So I'll introduce you to, to one particularly nasty opponent of Christianity, a guy named Celsus. Celsus was a Greek philosopher uh, from the second century, very anti-Christian, and he wrote a lot about arguments against why you shouldn't bother believing the Christian faith. And one of the arguments that he believed was the most telling was, well, it was women who found the empty tomb. And as we all know, women are hysterical, right? Just to be clear, his words, not mine, all right? That, but that was his argument. And many of his contemporaries agreed that this was discrediting to the Christian faith, that you, this wouldn't hold up in court the testimony of women, and so just dismiss it. And so do you see the significance of the fact that in Mark 16, Mark is unashamed to tell us that it was these three women who he names, the implication being you could have gone and talked to them and people who knew them to verify this. He's unashamed to tell us that it was them who discovered the empty tomb that Easter morning. And so what is going on here? Uh, well, either it's a massive blunder by Mark and the early Christians who, you know, maybe cooked up this story. Maybe they just completely were culturally unaware and so they shot themselves in the foot by saying that women found the empty tomb that morning. Either that's the case or it really was women who found it. I think actually that's the more credible explanation. Uh, that the writers of the Gospels were not looking to try and fabricate the story of the resurrection to make it more believable. They were interested in reporting even embarrassing details, even details that were counterproductive to their case. And so why are women recorded as being the ones who found the body? Well, because women were the one uh, who didn't find the body, I should say, because they were the first ones there that Easter morning. The second detail in this story that I think suggests that Jesus really did die is that 
these women, as they arrive at the tomb that morning, they're coming with spices. Now, what's that about? Looking to do some cooking? No. Uh, they were coming with all the equipment that they needed to anoint a dead, crucified, tortured, broken corpse. That's what you do with these spices. And so they were coming, notice, not expecting a resurrected Messiah. That was not part of their worldview going to the tomb that day. They were expecting to find a dead body, which is an embarrassing kind of a detail for the Christian writers to admit. But it does add credibility to the story, that Jesus really was dead, and we're not trying to hide that fact. And none of us saw it coming. Jesus was crucified. That's the first thing the angel says. The second thing he says happened is that Jesus has risen. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. So these women, as they go to the tomb, they're they're worried about this massive stone blocking the entrance, worried about how they're going to roll it away. And the first shock for them is that when they arrive, the, the stone has already been rolled away. And then the second shock is that they find there's this guy sitting inside the empty tomb, sitting on the the shelf where they would have laid Jesus' body. And the other gospel writers, they actually tell us explicitly that that person in that tomb that morning was an angel. Mark doesn't say that it was an angel, uh, but he may be hinting at it by describing this guy as being all dressed in white. You get this angel who shows up, and any time there's an angel that shows up in the Bible, you know something significant is going on. And sure enough... The angel says that something supernatural has taken place. He has risen. It's a very short kind of a statement, isn't it? An explanation of why Jesus is not there. He has risen. And yet, quite a lot hangs on that statement, doesn't it? It's actually uh, one single word in the original Greek language. It's the word agathe. He has risen, past event. And you see what a change that makes to Christianity. Agatha, he has risen. What a change that makes potentially to the whole world. He has risen. It's not an overstatement to say that the whole of Christianity is stacked on that word. Maybe the way that 2020 was a disappointment for you was that maybe you lost a loved one in 2020. Uh, The death of a family member or a a beloved friend is one of the hardest things that you'll ever go through. And 2020 added a cruel kind of a pain on top of that, didn't it? By making it hard or impossible for many people to actually attend the funerals of loved ones. Uh, I know many people in this church who attended funerals in the last 12 months over Zoom, which is something that I don't think anybody would have predicted being able to happen 12 months ago. I know people in this church who are only now starting to be able to go and visit the graves of people who they lost over the last 12 months. I wonder if if that's you, if, if you can think of somebody that you've lost, what would you give to have an angel come to the graveside of your beloved one and to say, Agathe, he has risen, she has risen. I want to say to you this evening that the whole of your grief and pain and loss that you will ever experience, in fact, the whole world turns upside down because of that one word, agathe. He is not here anymore. Agathe, he has risen. Do you know, that word is used 19 times in Mark's gospel, agathe. 
And it's almost, almost always used in a kind of a miraculous, supernatural kind of a way. For instance, back in chapter 2 of Mark's Gospel, Jesus meets a paralysed man and he says to the paralysed man, Agathe, get up, I'm, I'm healing you. Chapter 5, he meets a dead girl and he says, Agathe, you're not dead, little girl, get, get back up, I'm bringing you back to life. Chapter 10 of the Gospel, he meets a blind man on the side of the road and he says, Agathe, get up, blind man, I'm healing you. And here in chapter 16, for the 19th time in Mark's Gospel, Agathe, but it's not being said by Jesus anymore. It's being said about Jesus. He is not here anymore. He is the one who has risen. As truly as Jesus of Nazareth was killed on that cross, so he has returned to life. The tomb is empty. He has risen. Do you know, has any historian who's worth their salt will tell you that that's not in dispute, that the tomb was empty that first Easter morning. There's, there's no question over that, really. Even the ancient opponents of Christianity, people like Celsus, they didn't disagree that the tomb was empty. Jesus' body was not there. What they argued was that there was a different explanation for why Jesus' body was not there. But I want to argue that, no, the reason Jesus' body was not there is because the angels' words are true. This really happened. Jesus has... Risen, And so I want to suggest to you that it's actually a matter of historical importance for you to decide, did this happen or not? I'm, I'm claiming it did. Did it? You have to account, friends, for what happened from this point in history onwards. Think about the state of the Christian religion at this point. How do you get from this moment when the leader of the religion has been, been snuffed out, murdered in the most disgraceful way possible, all of his followers are scattered and in hiding, in fear for their lives by the authorities. The only people who are brave enough to come out and anoint the body are these three women. How do you get from that point to just in a couple of hundred years, the entire Roman Empire bowing the knee to Jesus? How do you get from that point to that point in history? There has to be an explanation for that. My explanation for it is Agathe. Jesus Christ has risen. That's what happened. Jesus of Nazareth was crucified and he has risen. And so what I want to do in, in the few minutes that I've got remaining this evening is to tell you why that happened. Now, lots of people understand that the, the claim of the resurrection is at the heart of the Christian faith, but... I think fewer people are clear about exactly why that's important, what the significance of the resurrection is. And so what I want to offer to you tonight are four little glimmers of light, four small reasons that I think the angel gives us to explain why the resurrection happened. The Bible has many more reasons for why the resurrection took place, and you can read about them elsewhere, but I just want to show you four brief ones tonight. And so let me tell you what I'm going to show you, the four reasons. Here they are. Why did the resurrection happen? Firstly, for full forgiveness. Secondly, to go before us. Thirdly, for face-to-face -face reunion. And fourthly, for fulfilment. And uh, if you're perceptive, you'll notice that I've tried to alliterate those uh, four things there. And I haven't quite succeeded. The second one doesn't quite well. You have to work a little bit harder to get the F before us. So, But anyway, maybe it'll help you to remember it if you can identify the four F's there. Why did the resurrection happen? Four reasons. Firstly, for full forgiveness. So look again at what the angel says in verse 7. Uh, the words are brief here, but they are full of meaning. The angel says, but go and tell his disciples 
and Peter. And that, that doesn't seem like a very significant kind of an instruction, does it? It's just telling the women to go and spread the word about what they've seen that morning. But actually, if you dig a little deeper and you bear in mind that in the broader context of Mark's gospel and what else has been said in Mark's gospel to this point, and you start to see the significance of what the angel is saying, go and tell his disciples. Remember them, the disciples, the ones who are in hiding right now, the ones who have been following Jesus around for three years, and then when the going got tough, they scarpered. Go and tell them and Peter. Now, why does Peter get a, a special mention there? Well, it's because he was the worst of the bunch of them. He was the one who boldly stood up and said, no, Jesus, I will never abandon you. Jesus, I will die for you. And he came close to, to sticking with Jesus. But then when he was interrogated by a young girl, he, he gave up. He denied Jesus three times. He was the worst of the bunch. The angel says, go, women, and tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus wants to see them. Now, that's quite a summons, isn't it? If you were one of the disciples hearing this news, Jesus, what? He wants to see me? I mean, can you imagine what Jesus could have said to his disciples when he finally meets them in Galilee? You backstabbing cowards, where were you? My hour of need and you abandoned me. What good are you? Look, it's a total disgrace now. You've jeopardized the whole operation. I mean, you, can, you, you would expect that Jesus would have some pretty harsh words for the disciples, wouldn't you? But these words of the angel here, they are dripping with grace. Go and tell his disciples and Peter that Jesus wants to see them. Not because there's more trouble for them, but no, because they're forgiven for what they've done. Because there is full forgiveness for his disciples who abandoned him. You see, the resurrection is a bit like that moment when a prisoner has served their prison sentence and they're released from jail. You know, when a prisoner walks free like that, uh, it is done. The penalty is paid. Their, their time is over. The punishment has been finished. And, and when Jesus walks free from his cell, from his tomb that Easter morning, it's over. The punishment has been paid. It's done. The penalty is cleared. There is nothing left. But in Christianity, you see, the difference is that Jesus pays that penalty for everyone who believes in him. And so he walks free from that tomb that Easter morning on your behalf and on my behalf if we believe in him, making it possible for anyone to be forgiven. Uh, like many of you, I suspect, I fell in love in, in 2020 with the musical Hamilton. Uh, I spent many an ISO hour watching it on Disney+, Plus, more times than I care to count. Uh, I've got tickets coming up soon, very excited about that. Um, if you haven't seen Hamilton, I strongly encourage you to. It's one of the finest pieces of art I've ever witnessed. Uh, it is a very powerful, very touching story uh, of one of America's founding fathers and his tremendous ambition and his rise to prominence and then his fall from grace and the mess he makes of his life, basically. And there's one moment uh, towards the end of the story when... Uh, Alexander Hamilton is he's a shell of his former self. Uh, he has made an absolute mess of his marriage to Eliza because of his serial adultery. Uh, he has just buried his 19-year-old son who has died in a dueling uh, fight. And Alexander is at least partially responsible for that tragic loss. He's ridden with guilt. He is racked with sorrow and regret. He's alienated from his wife. And at this point late in the story there's a song which explores 
the relationship, the future of the relationship between him and his wife, Eliza. And the lyrics say this, they're standing in the garden, Alexander by Eliza's side. She takes his hand. It's quiet uptown. It's this very touching moment where Eliza reaches out and holds her estranged husband's hand, hinting at the reconciliation that is going to take place between them. And, and underneath it, as they, as they do this, the chorus singers swell and they sing forgiveness. Can you imagine? Forgiveness, can you imagine? Do you know, to, to reach out and to extend the offer of forgiveness to somebody who is so undeserving. Can you imagine how much that costs? Can you imagine what that takes? Can you imagine, friends, what it costs, what it took for God to reach out and extend the offer of forgiveness to you? I'll tell you what it took. It took the death and resurrection of his own son, Jesus. The resurrection is the proof that there is no penalty left to be paid. As Jesus walks free from that tomb, it is God's signal that it's over, that there is reconciliation, that if Peter can be forgiven, then so can you. Why did the resurrection happen? Firstly, for full forgiveness. Secondly, it happened so that he would go before us. Have a look again at at verse 7. Notice the words of the angel. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. Now, as these words are being spoken to the women, they're in Jerusalem down south. And so on on surface level, this is saying that Jesus is going to be heading up north, 120 k's north in Israel to the town of Galilee. And that's significant because Galilee is a kind of a nothing town. It's not the capital of anywhere. Uh, There are no fancy people who live there, no rich and social elite. Galilee was a down-and-out kind of a town, people who are largely forgotten by the rest of Israel. And so immediately, this is telling you something about who this resurrection message is going to be for, the average kind of a person. But I actually think that there's something more going on with these words, that as you hear the angels say this, you are supposed to hear this faint echo of a theme which the rest of the Bible is going to fill out, that not only is Jesus going ahead of them and ahead of us to Galilee, but that he is going ahead of us into heaven. There's a a Portuguese explorer in the 16th century called Vasco da Gama. Great name. Uh, He was the first Portuguese explorer to sail around the tip of Africa, uh, past what was known as the Cape of Storms, that kind of southwestern point in the African continent. He was the first explorer to go past the Cape of Storms all the way to India and then to return. Uh, Previously, the Cape of Storms, that route, had been this impassable geographical feature. Uh, It was feared by navigators and sailors. Many shipwrecks took place there. And yet, Vasco da Gama managed it. He he managed the voyage in the early 1500s. And so today, and in fact, very shortly after Vasco da Gama succeeded in that voyage, the Cape of Storms was renamed. It was renamed to the Cape of Good Hope. Because you see, what had once been this inaccessible, inhospitable, threatening environment suddenly became a place of promise, a place of safety, a place of safe passage into a a new land for us to explore. And so do do you see that as Jesus passes through death, what he is doing is taking the sting 
and the danger and the storm out of death for us. Death for us now becomes the Cape of Good Hope. It is now a place that we can go without fear, confident of safe passage. That's why the resurrection happened. That's why it matters. Why did the resurrection happen? Firstly, for full forgiveness. Secondly, so Jesus could go before us. Thirdly, for face-to-face reunion. Um, In God's kindness to me, I've not been to that many funerals in my life. Uh, My experience of going to funerals, though, has been that the moment which the gravity of what's going on actually hits home with me is always the moment at which the coffin is taken away. Or if I'm at the graveside of a funeral, that the coffin is lowered into the ground and that it is begun to be covered by dirt. That's the moment at which it hits home with me that I'm not going to see this person that I love again, that I'm not going to see their face again. In verse 7, in, these, in this angel's words, we have a promise, actually, that in those moments, as the handfuls of dirt are put on top of the coffin, that that is not going to be the last moment. That's not the final chapter of the story. Look again at the angel's words in verse 7. He is going ahead of you into Galilee, says the angel. There you will see him. The angel was saying to these disciples, these ones who had buried Jesus, these ones who had laid him in the tomb, seen the stone rolled in front of it, these disciples who had seen the daylight fade on the body of the one that they loved at the end of Good Friday, And they had thought to themselves, well, that's it, it's over, I'm not going to see Jesus again. And the angel says, no, you will see him again. And I want to say to you tonight that that is an Easter Sunday promise that you can cling to if death is heavy on you or your household at the moment. If you have buried believers that you love, if they are in the ground, if they are separated from you, the angel says, well, remember, you will see your saviour again. You will. You will lock eyes with him. You will hear his voice. You will eat and drink with him, as the disciples were going to do. We will one day in heaven. You will see him again. There is going to be a face-to-face reunion for all people, for us with Jesus, but of course also for us with everyone else, who believes in Jesus. We will join with every other Christian and see Jesus face to face with them too. What a hope that is, that is unique to Christians. Why did it happen? Full forgiveness, to go before us, for face to face reunion, and lastly, for fulfillment. For fulfillment. The angel says, He's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Just as he told you. That is to fulfill Jesus' words. He told you this was going to happen. Um, Back in 1961, uh, President John F. Kennedy made a very famous speech to Congress in the US where he said that the US should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to earth. Uh, when JFK made that speech, that was a wildly ambitious goal. Uh, it sounded like the stuff of science fiction. To think that that could actually ever come true, most people just disregarded that kind of a notion. 
But of course, as you know, if you know history, in July of 1969, the Apollo 11 mission successfully ferried Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin to the moon and back in a ship that had less computing power than the smartphone in your pocket. It was a remarkable thing. Remarkable that JFK had promised this would happen 10 years earlier and that it did. It is an impressive thing when somebody predicts and says that they are going to do something that most people say is impossible and then they actually pull it off. How impressive is it, friends, that Jesus said he was going to do the thing that no one else in history has done, the thing that everybody thinks is impossible, and yet he did it. I mean, he, he didn't just say, oh, look, I might give it a go, see if I can you know, come back from the dead. Uh, you know, he, he insisted on it. You read Mark's Gospel. He says it time and time again. The Son of Man is going to suffer and die and be raised from the dead three days later. He promised that this would happen, and he did it. I think it's funny as you read the, the angel's words there in verse 7. I think looking at it from one angle, you could almost read the angel's words as a bit of a rebuke to the disciples. Just as he told you, says the angel. Just as he told you. Remember, guys, Jesus did talk about this an awful lot. Just as he told you. He did it. But you see, none of the disciples thought this was going to happen. None of the disciples woke up that Easter Sunday and went, oh, it's, it's Sunday, that means Jesus is coming back. He told us about this and I remembered it and I understood it. Off we go, let's go down and meet him at the empty tomb. No, no one did that. And so perhaps it's the angel kind of giving them a bit of a wink as he says this, just as he told you. Do you see how this is then the fulfilment of what Jesus said? It's not a mistake Jesus wasn't surprised to find himself resurrected on that Sunday morning. Oh, how did this happen? It's exactly what he said he would do. Indeed, it's exactly what the Old Testament said he would do over and over and over again. So perhaps, just perhaps, this ought to change the way that you think about the words that Jesus speaks in the Bible. Every time you hear him saying something from now on, perhaps it would be a good idea to pay extra special attention to it, because this is a guy who can say that he is going to return from death and do it. What's the next thing that Jesus said he's going to do? He said he's going to return again. Perhaps this Easter Sunday, we need to think a little bit more seriously about that promise. Why did all of this happen? Why did Jesus rise from the dead? We've had four glimmers of light in the angel's words. The angel doesn't expand on them yet, but the rest of the Bible does, and the rest of eternity will. Why did Jesus rise from the dead? For forgiveness, full forgiveness, so that you can know that your sin has been paid for as Jesus walks out of that tomb. To go before us, so that we are able to say, yes, I will go to heaven. For face-to-face -face reunion, so that we can have the hope that the grave is not the end, and that we will see him one day. And for fulfilment, so that we can trust that every word that Jesus speaks is absolutely true. There's this really beautiful moment at the end of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, when all the battles have been won, and uh, all of the kind of loose ends have been tied up. And Sam the Hobbit, uh, he says to Gandalf, he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead but I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? 
What's happened to the world, says Samwise Gamgee. Indeed, is everything sad going to come untrue? Yes, it is. Everything sad is going to come untrue. Now, we don't see the fullness of that yet, but one day we will because of what the angel said, because of what happened that Easter Sunday morning. And so I want to say that no matter your situation, no matter what your situation will be any day of your life, no matter the, the, hope, the crushed hopes and dreams that you carry around with yourself, the unmet expectations, no matter how hopeless you may ever feel, there is hope, eternal hope for everyone. Because Agathe, he has risen. Let me pray for us. Almighty God, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die in our place. We thank you that his death worked. We thank you that our sin has been paid for. We thank you that his resurrection proves it. We thank you that we no longer have to fear death. We thank you that we can have confidence that we will see you one day and that we can know today that you are trustworthy. Please help us to believe this.